Good morning, friends. So grateful that you're here, grateful that I'm here. We're going to pray before we begin. Gracious God, we are uh, honored to be in your presence, and we know that you are at work in each of us. We ask that we might be able to see and feel the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might remember what it is to be your people, and that we might be convicted in that work and in that life. We trust that you are at work, and we ask that you would help our unbelief. We thank you for this time together and for the study of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you uh, didn't look at your calendar this morning, today is the 7th of January, the year of our Lord, 2024. And you know by now that we have sort of passed by the winter holidays. Christmas is in the rear view, along with the holiday of the new year. And religiously speaking, we're out of the season of Advent and Christmas. We're no longer waiting for baby Jesus to come, and we're no longer really technically celebrating that he has come. We're in a new time now. We know all of the story. The mother and father traveled to visit with his family so the census could be taken. The angels bring a message to the shepherds. The baby is born. Christ is here. So now what? Well, we're going to consider what happens after Christ has come into the world. This week holds a Christian holiday that is called Epiphany, which is a word relating to this idea of revelation. It means to show up or show out or maybe even show on. It is about appearing and the manifesting of things that had been dreamed or imagined but were not known in reality. Epiphany is also specifically about the time when the wise men from the east, the Magi, brought gifts to Jesus to honor this new king. And we know that there are a lot of things that you and I understand colloquially in the waters of the Christmas story about this storyline. Some of them are true, some of them are partially true, and some of them are definitely not true. So, Before we get into the text of the story, we're going to address some of those sort of mythologies or extrapolations so that we can be clear on what we know for sure and what we don't know for sure. In most Christmas pageants, for example, you would think that the wise men visit is back to back with the visit from the shepherds and the angels. However, from the Greek of the text, we understand that in Matthew's gospel, which is where we find the Magi visiting, Jesus is called a child, not a baby, when they come to visit. And so second to that, when they come to see Jesus, they do not meet him at the stables with his parents. They do not meet him in the guest room of a cousin's house. They meet him at a home, some place that they are established. So this and other things sort of help us understand that Jesus is probably a year, a year and a half, when the wise men come to call. And this makes sense. The text tells us, which we'll get to in a bit, that they begin to leave their home and look for Jesus when his star appears in the sky after he is born. And even if you have travel issues like they did last winter with Southwest, then even that, it's not going to be a short trip to go visit this new king. So toddler Jesus is the child we should have in our head for this story. We also often refer to this as three wise men, 
in part due to the song We Three Kings, which has a delightful tune. Uh, and the, the idea of the three magi is constructed from the fact that there are three gifts given to Jesus. And so we say, okay, minimum, there's three guys to carry the three gifts, right? But other Christian traditions have different numbers. Eastern Christian Orthodoxy uh, has 10 or 12 wise men who come to visit. And in addition to those people who were actually uh, doing the wise men sort of stuff, you also have the people they're traveling with to help smooth their travel, carrying their bags, making the trip functional, keeping the map. In addition, it's probably not just wise men. In many of the religious communities that practiced any kind of star reading, uh, there were women involved as well in this religious work. And so we've got a big crowd of people. It's not three dudes on three camels, uh, but rather a whole posse of folks coming to find this new king. We don't know their names. We don't know if they came from uh, Iran or Arabia or someplace else. And we also cannot confirm their, like, cultural and national identities. The only thing we know for sure is that they came from the East, which is also a more generic term in the language for just someone who was foreign. They weren't from around these parts. The religion and their work is a little unclear, other than that we know that they studied the stars, they're astrologers, and that they had deep enough pockets to be able to make this trip to come and find this baby king to find a new king in a nation that already had a king. So we're certain they aren't kings, they're philosophers and scientists, but they seek a king. They're ready to honor this new ruler. A lot of people think that these magi, these wise people, were Zoroastrians, which is also a magi as a title of a priest within this religious belief and practice. And there are still people to this day who practice this religious identity. And they, at the time, focused a lot on reading the stars and understanding where kings and prophets would be born. That fits. It makes a lot of good sense. Astrology at the time of Jesus's context was also very scientific. So rather than the image that you have in your mind of three slightly different colored men on three camels bringing three small boxes of gifts, imagine more specifically a group of faithful religious scientists from a foreign unknown land with unknown people with them and unknown genders within them. A little bit confusing, perhaps, which is why we like the convenience of three men, three gifts, three cities. But we do know some things about them, and I think it's important that we focus on what we're sure about first. So let's read from Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. At the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been told to us by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people 
Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. And opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The story is beautiful and it's complicated. We could focus on the wise men, these visitors, and their role in the story. We could talk about the gifts and the significance of each element. We could talk at length about the ruler Herod and his fear of the coming of this new child. But the central actor of this story is none of those things and none of those people. It is not even Jesus himself who is the focus of this story. The primary player here is God's actions to bring Jesus into the awareness of the larger world. But maybe that's a bit ahead of ourselves here. So let's rehash this story. After Jesus has been born, wise star watchers interpret that a new star means a new king has been born. They travel, identifying that it's a king of Judah and try to find this new ruler. They arrive at the capital city, and they, and all of their crew, ask a seemingly innocent question, but one that could have their heads on a chopping block in any moment. Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east, and we came to pay him honor. I'm sure that the people they asked this question to the first time were baffled by this, because there is already a king of the Jews. And that particular king has demonstrated that he would do anything to keep his power in place. Asking this kind of question was dangerous. Herod was paranoid. And that paranoia had already led to the death of multiple children of his that he had had murdered, multiple wives that he had had murdered, and other family members that he thought were thinking about thinking about thinking about overthrowing him. So this question that they are asking for this new king that was born is a direct threat to Herod's power. It might even be considered a treasonous question or a threat of war with the nation that these people have come from. But Herod is nothing if he's not a schemer, so he pretends that he's curious. So he gathers all of the religious advisors in the area who, after some discussion, tell him that the answer to the question that they were posing is that the child who is to be king is to be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. So Herod secretly, shocker of all shockers, gathers the Magi, tells them what the advisors had told him, and pretends that he wants to worship the child along with them. So when they find him, would they send him a note so he could go and honor this new king? Yeah, right. So the Magi leave and they go towards the city of Bethlehem. And when they find the home of this 
king, child, they rejoice. And they offer these gifts that they had brought, gold fit for a king, frankincense for sacred rituals, myrrh, a burial balm. These expensive offerings are symbolic, but they're also practical in acknowledging this new king. They could have been used medicinally to help care for this child whose immune system's not fully developed, or they could be sold as they were expensive gifts to help provide funding to feed a small human. They knelt down before this toddler in honor, understanding him to be the new king of Judah. And then, after they're warned in a dream, they go home by another route, and they don't even drop Herod a postcard. This story has a lot of lessons for us to gain from it. And there are many places where we might find ourselves associating with this story. But because it is a part of the Christmas story, we also might have conflicting ideas in our own minds about the text. We might be tempted to read into it more than is actually present in the story. And so it's important for us to notice that these wise visitors do not suddenly become virtuous worshipers of the one God. In fact, we know for certain that they don't. They don't suddenly convert to Judaism or some sort of proto-Christianity. They don't return later in our story to be baptized by Jesus in the Jordan after he enters his public ministry. They come expecting a king. They honor the king. They return to their homes, their jobs, their religious work, and their contexts. They return home by another way. They consider in this moment that they have found a king and their work is done. We should also note that as they bring gifts to pay honor to Jesus, they're not worshiping Jesus as divine. That will come later in the story. We have a bigger reveal a few chapters on in Matthew, but they do not see him yet in his fullness but they recognize something that no one else in our story has been able to name yet. That this child, this toddler, chubby-cheeked, is a king, born a king. These wise magi are a part of the story reinforcing something that God is doing that is much bigger than this moment. Jesus is born in a Jewish body, in a Jewish family, in a Jewish town, under Jewish sort of rule. But long before Jesus has even turned two years old, before he learns to teach and to preach and to heal and to pray, even before any of that happens, Jesus is revealed not just to those in his context, but to the world at large. He is brought into the consciousness of the outside world. He's introduced to these not religiously Jewish, not ethnically Jewish, not culturally Jewish outsiders. And they return unchanged by this, but they're the first to name him for what he is. And they had been led to meet Jesus, welcomed into the home of toddler Christ by his gently baffled parents. They had honored this new king, understanding this crucial element of his identity before anybody else does. And because of this, we also can rejoice with these magi in the joy of finding 
this king of Judah. Even though, perhaps, he's not the kind of king that they imagine that he would be. So these magi are teaching us about the universality of the message of Jesus, what Jesus would mean for the world. They also teach us something important, which is God's work in the world will come however God wants it to come. Because it's not as if these magi had special knowledge to put them ahead of the game in terms of reading the signs that Jesus was coming above like the local religious leaders. Only after Herod gathers and consults all of the religious folk in the town, do they figure out where this Messiah is supposed to even be born. It's a prophecy from their own scriptures. It's not one from outside of it. But they didn't know how to read the signs. The professionals had all of the cards. They had all the time in the world to understand God's plan, but they missed it. They were too busy assured in themselves, confident that they understood how life and God worked. They were not learning from the evidence of the world around them. Their own insistence on truth, their obsession with what was right, hindered them from seeing the star and observing what it might mean, from believing these wise visitors as they come into town. They assumed that they would know the truth first, not the world. The world never gets it right. They assumed they had religious truth. After all, they knew who God truly was. They were special to God. But this was only part of what was true. These religious people are not like horribly corrupt with a secret deep hatred for God while pretending to care about him. They were devoted, well-meaning believers whose lives were committed to the work of God. But those very same religious people were too focused on their, their idea of truth and God's work in the world, and they missed the physical presence of God in the world, in their own backyard. What they needed was an outside revelation, an epiphany, you might say, to show them where the light of the world had come. I think the lesson from this text for us this week, at least, is in two parts. They're connected pretty closely. The first is that there is no right kind of person to receive the truth of God. Anyone can participate in the story of Christ and in the message and transmission of Jesus. There is no favoritism to any one group and no gatekeeping for anybody else. If foreign, non-Jewish, unconverted astrologers can be the first to name Jesus Christ as king, then none of the rest of us have anything else to worry about. Even if we keep a list that's a mile long of people who can't repent, who wouldn't repent, who shouldn't, there's no one kept from the ability to participate in the message of Jesus Christ. The Christ child is for everyone. No one is kept from this new light. Even Herod gets to hear the good news. The second point is that recognizing God's presence in the world requires openness to the impossible ways that God is working. When we believe that we have it right, we can keep our eyes only in one direction 
and we miss everything else that God is doing because we're so certain God's going to show up this way. When we cling too closely to the text of the scripture, we end up focusing instead on our ideas about the scripture. When we fail to recognize and know the spirit of God, we will also be got caught off guard by visitors looking for a king. Without humility, we will always assume Christianity is right and the world writ large is wrong. And that will turn into that our branch of Christianity is right and then all the other branches are wrong, which turns into our personal Christianity is right and everybody else is wrong. This mentality is ungodly, it is unrighteous, it is self-oriented, and it is desperate for certainty when our God is a God of truth but not a God of surety. God is too vast for us to fully understand and to demand assurance of the truth on every issue turns certainty into a rival idol to our God. Yes, we must be wise. Yes, we must discern. Yes, we must not be drawn away by every breeze. But to believe is to be uncertain because faith always requires a leap. There is an unknowable element to our God. You never know when a God that you have heard about only in spirit and concept shows up in the body of a Judean child. But it is that kind of greatness, that kind of vastness that allows us to be humble. It allows us to take our own ego out of it. With humility, we can be open to others. We can be ready to hear God's direction in unexpected ways. We can be prepared to step out of our comfort zone way out of our comfort zone, because we trust that God is leading. Because we know that God's presence in the world is not always a king on a throne, but sometimes a king toddling around his parents' legs. The story of the visit of these magi should encourage us to notice our mindsets of rigid thinking, black and white, right and wrong. It should also allow us to reevaluate how we approach God and the world. God is the root of all true things. And by trusting God to reveal those truths, no matter the concept or package they come in, we can be assured of our own faith and life. And by humility, we can be assured that when God does show up in unexpected places and times, that we won't miss the signs, that we can then go and rejoice in the presence. God. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button. Or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you 
as you seek to follow him.